Good morning. Transit Church, how's everyone doing? Good, good. Amen. If there's coffee, if you need some coffee, there's a coffee booth in the end. And if someone wants to get me a coffee, that'd be great, because raise your hand if you're a little tired today. Anyone here a little tired? Yeah, a lot of hands going up. I don't know if it's the warm weather or what's going on, but we'll pray for some energy and uh, pray that I get some up here as well. Um, well, if I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Nick, one of the pastors here. And if you're new, welcome. We are continuing our sermon series going through the book of Acts. Today, we're in Acts 5, verses 27 through 42. 27 through 42. So open up your Bibles, turn them on, and turn there. It's a, we got a big chunk of scripture uh, to get through today. But if you were with us last week, uh, what we looked at, this is kind of a two-part series within Acts where uh, we're kind of in the same scene uh, that we were last week. Where last week we saw as the 12 apostles were in Solomon's portico and they were preaching the gospel and healing the sick and uh, casting out demons and the kingdom of God was breaking in and the, it was, the word was spreading throughout the multitudes surrounding uh, Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin, the 71 uh, religious political elite uh, of uh, ancient Israel in the first century, uh, were a little bit filled with jealousy uh, and they were angered by this, so that they actually arrested the 12. And that's what we looked at last week, is that the 12 apostles got arrested, put in jail uh, for uh, maybe half a night because an angel of the Lord came and unarrested them, okay? So the angel of the Lord appears to the apostles who were put in prison. And the reason they were put in jail is because the Sanhedrin, they were going to uh, put them before the council and they're going to try them. They're going to indict them to lead them to uh, some form of punishment, if not capital punishment that we'll see in our text today. So uh, the great thing about what the angel of the Lord came to do is that he didn't just come and rescue victims of persecution. The angel of the Lord came and loosed the Lord's lions out of the cage to go and advance the kingdom of God. So the messenger came, gave a mission, and said, essentially, at daybreak, go and do exactly what you're doing right where you were doing it and keep advancing my kingdom, keep exalting and magnifying the name of Jesus and ushering his kingdom. So where we ended kind of last week was uh, the Sanhedrin, the council is in session, it's the next day, and uh, they're in kind of uh, wherever they hold their, their legal gatherings, their court cases. Everyone's gathered and they send uh, the temple officers to gather the 12 out of the prison cell. And uh, they find it locked and secure with nobody inside. And so there's an individual comes running back and saying, who should have come back with 12 apostles? And he comes back alone and he tells the council that, hey, the guys that we arrested last night, somehow they escaped. I have no idea where they are. This left the council extremely terribly befuddled, confused, and humbled. And then someone finds them at Solomon's Portico, a first century Sherlock Holmes, comes running in, saying he found them, and they re-arrest, essentially, these apostles, but in a more gentle way. They bring them to trial. And all that to say, that quick recap, I just want to catch us up to speed uh, for the context of where we're at today, because our text today is essentially, if we were to have a live stream feed, if you will, a first century live stream feed into this trial where uh, the 12 apostles are before the council, and there's uh, litigation going, coming against them, this is what it would look like. So these verses that we're reading to you today uh, would be a live stream feed of that trial. And the question we're going to ask to frame out our time in this big chunk of scripture today is how should we, the principles we're going to pull out from this text, and the question we're going to ask is this, is how should we, as followers of Jesus, respond to persecution? How should we, as followers of Jesus, respond, not if persecution comes, but when it comes. And the four principles that we're going to kind of look at, four words that start all with the letter C. So if you're a note taker, be of good cheer. It's going to be easy for you to take notes today. Four points are this, conviction, confidence, celebration, and compassion. 
when followers of Jesus uh, are persecuted, we stick to our convictions. We uh, stand firm in our confidence in Christ. We celebrate that we're able to share in the suffering of Jesus, and we clothe ourselves with compassion to our enemies and to those who are persecuting us. That's the four principles we're going to pull out of our text today. So let's pray, and then we'll uh, dive on in. How does that sound? Amen. Good. All right, well, Heavenly Father, we, we come before you rejoicing, Lord Jesus. We come rejoicing, Lord Jesus, that you descended, you left your throne, you came to us in our sin and our depravity, and uh, you went to the cross for us. You bore the 30 li- 39 lashes for us, the, the scorn, the shame, the rebukes, the punches, the blows, the, the forsakenness of the Father, uh, our sins placed upon the spotless Lamb of God so that we could go free and receive your forgiveness and your love and your compassion and your presence forever. So we come uh, acknowledging that none of this is about us. It's all about you, Jesus. All glory belongs to you. And collectively, we say thank you today. We say thank you for the price that was paid for our redemption, for our salvation. And I ask Holy Spirit, you would come and you'd open the eyes of our heart to see Jesus, to behold our King, to look at him. And all the areas that we've been looking elsewhere for comfort, for salvation, we take our gaze off of that, we repent, and we fix our gaze upon you, our Savior and our King. So come, Holy Spirit, have your way with your word. Magnify Jesus. I pray, Lord, that anything I say here that is not of you would be uh, forgotten and that you would just use me. You would speak through me. You would use your word. You would apply your word. You'd have your way with your word and your people, and you would exalt and magnify Jesus, and I would decrease up here and be forgotten. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so uh, the court is in session. The apostles are seated, and here comes the indictment. And the first point uh, we're going to see is how followers of Jesus should respond to persecution is one, is stick to our convictions. Look at verses 27 through 28. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So here's the charge. It's kind of three counts, three indictments. One is the charges is this. You are obeying the governing authorities. The governing authorities, the law in the land has, has silenced you. We have censored your speech. We have told you that there's only certain things that you are allowed to say, and there's certain things you are not allowed to say. And you're disobeying the government. That's charge one. You're disobeying the governing authorities. Charge number two is, hey, this is personal for us. You're putting this man's blood on our hands. You're condemning us. You're saying that Jesus, whom we crucified, listen, there is an offense to the gospel, to the message of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Because what that means is all of us like sheep have gone astray. We're all in need of redemption. We're all sinners separated from God. That's the offense of the gospel. So the charge is you're condemning us from the Sanhedrin. The third charge is this, is you're ruining our nation. You're ruining our nation. You, you have filled Jerusalem with this cancer, this toxic teaching, okay? And so at this moment, listen, when the heat of persecution gets turned up, and listen, the, the indictment that was coming in the first century is the same indictment that is coming against the church in the 21st century, right? Uh, we're, catching, we're catching wind of this. We're catching uh, a current that's rising of this uh, 
uh, disobedience to governing officials who are censoring our speech. We can only say certain things. Uh, uh, we're being deemed as people full of hatred and all that stuff. And then secondly, uh, it's a cancer to the nation. It's oppressive and so on and so forth. So the same things that they were being accused of in the first century are being lobbed our way as way. And so when the heat is turned up, these 12, as that indictment comes and they can plead guilty or not guilty, they have a choice to make. And the choices, uh, the choices they had to make are the same choices we have to make when the heat of persecution gets turned up. And it's, it's three things. The first thing they could have done is they could have abandoned their convictions. They could have completely deconstructed their faith and they could have surveyed, okay, I'm looking at the same people that crucified uh, my Lord and Savior not a few months ago and I'm, I'm at their mercy, essentially. Okay, and I could behold the persecution that's coming and look at my convictions and say, well, maybe this isn't true and maybe I'll just deconstruct and accept whatever is acceptable so I don't have to take the hit. I don't have to take the hit of persecution, okay? So they could have abandoned their convictions. But listen, I think for us, we do see this in the, in the church at large today. And we are see, seeing thousands upon thousands globally come to know Jesus. So don't get uh, frustrated on uh, or sad or discouraged when we see people deconstruct because uh, multitudes are coming to know Jesus across the globe in mighty powerful ways, okay? Um, but the second way I think that we wrestle with the, with opposition arising against uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview today, is this, is we, uh, we, we don't abandon our convictions, we amend our convictions. We amend our convictions. And so we'll go back into scripture. Oh, God, let's give Jonah a round of applause. Yeah, and Melissa. Uh, what's gonna happen is uh, the sermon's about to get fired up. All right, hold on. Amen, thank you. God bless you, and Melissa, thank you for the water. We amend our convictions. We, we go back to scripture and we say, and we go, we go back to, we're essentially back in, in Genesis 3 in the garden and we ask this question, did God really say? And the reason we want to amend our convictions is because we still want to follow Jesus, but we just don't want to follow him in his suffering. We don't want to follow him in his persecution. And so we're, we're trying to get the acceptance of the culture and the acceptance of our savior when in fact Jesus has promised us, if the world hated me, it will hate you. It's a promise. It's a promise. We are to respond with love and compassion. But at the end of the day, sticking to our gospel convictions will leave people enraged. Some will be led to salvation and others it will lead to them being enraged as they, uh, uh, you know, as this gospel is offensive. Okay. So we amend our convictions. But what we see the apostles filled with the spirit, what they do is they adhere to their convictions. They don't abandon Jesus. They don't amend uh, any, any of the teachings of Jesus, putting words in Jesus' mouth that were never there. They adhere and stick to their convictions, saying, come what may, Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is how they respond. This is how the defense responds to the indictments. But Peter and the apostles answered him, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So immediately what we see here is the apostles don't budge an inch on their convictions. They respond to the threefold indictment this way. In, reg in regards to them disobeying authority, the first charge here of disobeying the government authorities, they, they uh, remind the Sanhedrin who the ultimate authority is. And, they, and Peter says this, we must obey God rather than men. Line in the sand drawn. We will honor and respect the governing officials until they start commanding us to do things that directly uh, contradict what our Savior has commanded us to do. We must obey God. 
And whenever there's a conflict between what Jesus says and what governing officials say, guess who wins, okay? So guilty as charged, first indictment, Peter and the apostles, guilty, okay? Secondly, the indictment of it being personal, right? You're putting this man's blood on our hand, and this is what Peter says. He just goes, sticks to his convictions, doesn't water it down, and he goes, uh, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. He's saying, last time I checked, I, you were the ruling body that got Jesus crucified. The words that were coming, coming out of your mouth were crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It's a statement of fact, okay? And, and, and the good news is, is that this Jesus whom you crucified is still offering repentance and forgiveness to you. So yes, it's offensive, but yes, there's a king who died to set you free and to rescue you from your sins. So yes, you were yelling, crucify him. Yes, there's blood on your hands, but there's forgiveness, undeserved forgiveness being offered to you. So guilty on the second charge. And then secondly, when it comes to the national issue, that you're ruining our nation, you're filling Jerusalem with this cancerous teaching. He goes, they double down and they say, Jesus is the leader and the savior of the world. He has given repentance and forgiveness to Israel. Jesus is not ruining Israel. He is redeeming and rescuing Israel, okay? And that means, what that means, when they hold, when they draw that line in the sand to the Sanhedrin, what that means is this, is that this temple and your job in the temple is completely obsolete. You're not the savior of Israel anymore. The new covenant has been ushered in by the blood of the, the, the lamb. This temple, obsolete. Your entire, this whole thing that you guys are doing is completely obsolete. So yes, in a way, Jesus came to rescue and to redeem Israel and deconstruct the kind of the old, right? Like, like the temple is now obsolete because the body of Christ is the temple, the temple of God, the place where his glory dwells. So what Peter is saying, the apostle is saying is guilty on all three charges. And the reaction of the Sanhedrin was they were enraged. They're rending their you know, garments, they're, they're, they're just, they're ready to kill these guys. They said they wanted to kill them. They wanted to stone them. And if we were to ask um, the question to land the plane here uh, to, um, to our day and age is, is ask the question, how do we stick to our convictions in the face of persecution? What I would say biblically what we see is it's simply impossible to do that without the Holy Spirit. Peter, Peter, during Jesus's trial, before the same ruling body is in the courtyard of the temple, and three times he gets asked if he has any association with Jesus. And Peter walked with the living Son of God, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. He, he saw Jesus perform the miracles, raise the dead, heal the sick, walk on water. He knew what Jesus' breath smelled like, okay? Three years and uh, a servant girl in the courtyard accuses Peter of having association with Peter, with Peter with Jesus. And Peter goes, I, he curses the girl out and says, I have no association. He abandons his convictions. He doesn't amend him. He abandons any and all association with Jesus. And then you read certain commentaries where uh, certain scholars that I love and respect but have a different uh, stance on pneumatology, a doctrine of the Holy Spirit than I do, they get to this text and they see the same Peter who denied Jesus now boldly uh, uh, looking potential death in the face and testifying to the gospel. And they say something changed. Something happened in Peter, but no one will talk and read scripture and mention, hey, what happened, right? I don't know. Maybe it was Pentecost, all right? <laughs> Just a hunch. It was Acts 2, okay? And maybe it was the very words of Jesus in Luke. I forget the direct reference. You can look it up. Jesus prophesied and he said, you will stand before trials. They will persecute you. Do not worry about what you say. Why? The Holy Spirit 
will fill your mouth and give you the boldness and the words to speak. And then you go to Acts 1.8, the thesis statement of Acts. And Acts 1.8 is where the Holy Spirit will come upon you to empower you to be my witnesses. And Jesus says, don't raise a finger towards the Great Commission until you receive the Holy Spirit. And then you see in Acts 4, Acts 4, when Peter and John are arrested in Acts 3, after healing the Acts 3 and 4, healing the man lame from birth, and the church gathers after that, and what do they pray for? They pray for boldness. They pray for more power from the Spirit. Why? Why? To testify to the gospel. You don't need to pray for boldness if you have it. So they ask God for boldness. You read Ephesians 6, 19, and we see the apostle Paul, the apostle himself, asking the church at Ephesus in 6, 19, saying something to this effect. To this, Ephesians 6, 19, he says, he prayed for me, essentially, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. You have the apostle Paul himself giving the revelation, the mystery of the gospel given from Jesus himself to him. And he is saying, I need the Holy Spirit to fill my mouth. I give me words to testify boldly the gospel. See, the Paul himself asking for boldness, prayer for boldness. And so, yes, we always punt to natural arguments and we want to give a reasonable defense for the hope that is within us, okay? No, no, have a good defense, understanding that our faith is a reasonable faith, church, is a reasonable faith. Do our homework. Let's, let's, let's be Christians who love Jesus with all of our minds and let's study our worldview. Let's give a reasonable defense with our, with our minds, okay? And let's understand other worldviews and understand that we can go beautifully on the offensive in a loving way and we don't always have to give a defense. We can also uh, lovingly challenge presuppositions of other worldviews that are frankly, you know, that need to be challenged. And at the same time, what scripture makes clear is that we need a full reliance and dependence and desperation on the Holy Spirit to stand firm in the face of opposition. And that is modeled to us in Acts by the early church. It's modeled to us by, in, in Acts, prayerful dependence. In the times, the most powerful times this year, where the, the, the night before that I've I've gathered with non-believers that, that I'm, I'm just, you know, grabbing coffee with or whatever. And in the past, I would brush up on apologetics arguments or, you know, my Romans road and all this stuff. And, 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 and instead, what I'm doing now as I've been awakened to life empowered by the Spirit is my face is on the floor the night before and I'm begging God to show up and Him to fill my mouth and Him to work in these situations, uh, acknowledging my weakness so that He can be made strong because the, whole, the runway for the Holy Spirit is weakness. The runway for the Holy Spirit to come and land the plane is when we humble ourselves and we ask and we go low and we ask for help saying, apart from you, Jesus, and you showing up, we can do nothing. So that's how we stick to our convictions, is this dependence upon, empowerment by the Holy Spirit, in addition to, yes, us doing our homework and in love, uh, studying other worldviews and, 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 and all that stuff. So one, we see the apostles, they stick to their convictions filled with the Spirit. And then secondly, uh, another principle we pull out in this text is how we should respond in the midst of persecution is confidence in Christ. Because often the first thing that comes, maybe the first time in our lives when we're facing opposition and we're reading the news and we're seeing uh, Christians not to, in a different county losing their jobs for sticking up for what they believe, uh, or the first thing that rushes into our hearts is, is doubt and fear and, and anxiety. And uh, Gamaliel, what's interesting, is in our text, one of the Pharisees, Gamaliel, a leader within the Sanhedrin, he stands up and he kind of holds a TV timeout. The council is going nuts. They're about to kill the twelve. And Gamaliel calls a timeout and he shows what confidence in God looks like. Confidence in God looks like. And this is what Gamaliel says. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. 
And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, okay? And I think he, here's one smart person who's realizing these guys got out of jail and nobody has figured out yet how they got released, okay? So we need to slow our roll. He's saying, slow down a little bit, slow your roll. Verse 36, for before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him and he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him and he too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this is, watch this, if this is the plan or if this is the undertaking of man, it will fail. And watch this verse. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so what Gamaliel is saying, and I had this thought as I read this, I go, you have a first century non-Christian Pharisee who has more confidence in the power of God to advance his kingdom through his son, Jesus, than many 21st century Christians in the West do, right? And what he's saying there is he's, listen, Sanhedrin, if we're standing on the shore, okay, and, and, and we've seen waves come, like movements come, like a wave crash on the shore, Thutis comes and, and the, the tide goes back. And then Judas rises up and the tide goes back. Listen, if this is of God, this is what this looks like, what we're trying to do. It looks like, looks like, looks like us standing on the shore when the sirens are going off that a tidal wave is coming. And we're digging our, heel, we're digging our heels, lying in the sand, and we're standing in front of a tidal wave. And we're saying, tidal wave, you can only come this far, as we say, right? Like, that's insane. That's insane. Like, you have better luck throwing a, you know, like, you have better luck standing. This is what we need to hear. Let me hear this. Please hear this, church. You would have better luck standing in front of a tidal wave and telling it to stop than you would stopping the move of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in spite of anything that gets thrown against the church and King Jesus and his kingdom advancing, uh, his kingdom will advance? Job 42.2 says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so when we face persecution, let's etch that stone in our hearts. I know who my king is where he is seated, what he is capable of, and that no purpose of his will be shaken. Because our refrain, essentially, when we face persecution and love, is this, listen, you can arrest us, you can persecute us, you can censor us, you can kill us, but you have to know you're not just up against us, right? We have the line of Judah on our side. And that's the deal breaker. And so, and so when Gamaliel says this in the first century, it was prophetic, right? Because look at where we're at today. Alexandria, Virginia, across an ocean, and the kingdom of God is still advancing 2,000 years later. The tidal wave of his kingdom advancing. Uh, no matter what has come against it, the, the church still moves. The church still goes. The kingdom still advances, okay? So we need to, let's etch that in our stone. When we face persecution, let's look to Jesus. Behold our Savior. Maybe get off the news, get off the blog post, and look to Jesus in the face of persecution, remind our souls who our king is and where he is seated. And we talked about that last week, so I'm going to move on to our third point. So when we face persecution as followers of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, we stick to our convictions, we place our confidence by looking to Jesus, and thirdly, we celebrate that we get to share in the sufferings of Christ. We celebrate. Look at verses 39 through 41. And so they took Gamaliel's advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name 
of Jesus and let them go. And then what we see in verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And uh, kind of a confusing verse in our text is it says, they took Gamaliel's advice and then immediately they, they beat them, right? And it begs the question, well, if they took his advice and that led to them getting beaten, then you can only imagine what the alternative was. That Gamaliel stepping up and intervening, he just saved their life because these guys were about to get stoned. They're about to get put to death, okay? That was the alternative. And when we hear, when we read, uh, beat them, we maybe think that the Sanhedrin, these maybe 60, 70 you know, year old scroll nerds, they didn't have book nerds, they're not book nerds, scroll nerds, were the ones, you know, hitting the, like, I don't, like, don't know how uh, much, uh, you know, heat is behind the, uh, the right cross of a 70-year-old scribe in the first century, but you can imagine that, hey, like, that doesn't sound that big of a deal. What actually happens when it says they beat them is that they flogged them. They flogged them, and, and uh, a New Testament commentator, one of the most re- well-respected commentators, Daryl Bach, on the book of Acts, he says this is what the flogging most likely entailed. When it says they beat them, this is what happened. Uh, verses won't be on the screen, but I'll read this to you. It is probably the 40 lashes minus one. The whipping would have been on the back and chest with a three-stranded strap of calf hide. This could leave one close to death, if not dead, from the loss of blood. And the hope of the Sanhedrin is that by intensifying the punishment, a deterrent will be established. And I love the three words he says here. They are wrong. They are wrong. And the insanity of what happened in our text is that these 12 apostles leave the whipping post. They go one by one. One goes, maybe Peter goes first. And they get two blows on the back. Crack, crack, flip them around, one on the chest. Boom, 39 times. Cries of agony and pain screaming out. And then John goes. And then James goes. And so on and so forth. 12 of these men getting the 39 minus one. And they leave and they leave, and they probably had to get carried away. I mean, so this could lead you close to death from the loss of blood. And so as the church gathers, they're weeping, and they're carrying these guys probably on cots now, and mats, the apostles are leaving cots and mats to go home to get healed, to get healed with all the strength they can muster. They're grinning ear to ear, tears of joy streaming down their blood, bloody faces. And with the strength that they can have, what's coming out of their mouth is praises to Jesus. Why? Why were they praising Jesus? Because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. The one who bore 39 lashes for them, they got to bear 39 lashes for him. And when you, when you, when you kind of get into, well, what does it mean to be deemed worthy of something? You can kind of, you know, we, we're a military church here, not a military church, but a church full of lots of military folks, is when you go to an award ceremony where someone gets a medal of honor or someone gets, they've been deemed worthy to get a purple heart you get something that's worthy of, of service, right? And so that whipping post that they were tied to, that was the, uh, the award ceremony. And the crack of the whip off of their back and their chest was the applause of heaven. And the medallion that these men were given were the scars on their back that they would bear forever. The medallion they were given, the medallion they were given that my back and my chest looks like the chest and the back of my Savior. That's what that looks like. And that was worthy for them. That was, that was cause for celebration. There was no greater joy for them that the Jesus who took the 39 for them, that they now had the honor to take the 39 
for him. And a common refrain I get when I pray with someone in my family, he always, he often says this, he says to Jesus, he says, it would be such an honor to receive some scars in the battle for you. It would be such an honor to receive some scars in the battle for you. And 1 Peter 4, 13 through 14 says this, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So last week we talked about the apostles' feet and how their feet looked like Jesus. And they followed in the footsteps of Jesus, calloused, war-torn as they sought after the, the lost. And now their backs and their chests looks like Christ as well. And there is no greater honor for them than to follow in the footsteps of their king who gave uh, his everything for them. And then two, we see the reason for our rejoicing. I could give a whole nother sermon based on all of the scriptures in the New Testament where Jesus commands his disciples to rejoice in the midst of persecution is this, is one, it's verification that, um, that we're gonna share in Christ's glory as we share in his suffering. Two, it's, a, it's, a, a, it's confirmation that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, First Peter teaches us, that, that if, if they, people hate us because Christ is in us, we rejoice because they can see Christ in us, right? It's, it's an it's a empirical evidence that the Holy Spirit resides in us. And so it's cause for rejoicing. Jesus says, rejoice greatly in the Sermon on the Mount if you get persecuted for my sake, my namesake, because great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. So we see that the response to persecution for the believer is not lamentation, it's actually celebration. Out of love for Jesus, we get to share in his sufferings, the one who suffered and died for us. This is how we see them respond. And lastly, lastly, we see that the way we are encouraged to respond throughout the scriptures to opposition, to violence, to persecution, is compassion, to clothe ourselves with the compassion of Jesus for the very ones who are persecuting us. Look at verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now listen, it would be extremely easy for these 12 men who were beaten and scorched to the point of death and probably took them weeks to recover. It had been very easy for them to respond with anger and bitterness and vitriol and hatred towards the Sanhedrin. They could have taken pictures of their scars, uploaded to social media and encouraged the larger body of Christ to be enraged at the governing officials and to hate them and to you know, get the pitchforks out, so on and so forth. We don't see that. We don't see that being the response. We see them rejoicing. And, and, and I, you better believe, I'm sure they wrestled with that and they had to release that, maybe release forgiveness upon those, the persecutors. But what we see is they continue the compassionate work of King Jesus in advancing his kingdom. They continue the compassionate work of advancing the gospel out of love for the lost, not out of love for themselves and self-preservation. Um, fear looks like self-preservation. Love casts out fear and love looks like pressing into loving others no matter the cost for the glory of Jesus. And the reason why they responded this way, and we can't necessarily read this into the text that in verse 42 that they had compassion for the Sanhedrin, um, but we do see them continuing the work. And we talked about that last week, but the reason I wanna focus on, on compassion, I'll talk about this in a little bit, 
is because something that we have to clothe ourselves in as the body of Christ, particularly in kind of the season, the day and age we're in, is we have to clothe ourselves in the compassion of Jesus and the gospel and remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us so we can love our enemies, okay? Because this is why the apostles responded in the way they did, because it's what Jesus commanded them to do. It's what Jesus modeled for them to do. Watch this, Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That is the ethic in our culture today. You realize that, right? That is, the, that is what is socially acceptable on social media, is you love your tribe and you hate the other tribe. And you condemn them and you speak violence and you cancel them. This is the ethic of today. You cancel your enemies, you hate your enemies, and you love your tribe. And Jesus, thank you, Jesus, that he gives us a much more beautiful way to live our lives and lay down our lives. He says this, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. How do followers of Jesus, the children of God, respond to persecution? We bless and we serve our persecutors, our persecutors. And so in the news recently in Loudoun County, there was a teacher who was put on paid leave, who most likely, I mean, won't get uh, a job in the fall uh, for simply in love, uh, clearly articulating at a council meeting that, hey, I can't, I can't change my language from a biblical worldview to an unbiblical worldview. I love, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. I love my students. I love our teachers. I love our faculty. But I'm not going to do this. And immediately, boom, put on paid leave. And, um, and today is, is June. It's, it's Gay Pride Month. And I was praying this week. And my heart's kind of heavy with certain agendas and certain tides that are rising. And I asked the Lord, Lord, what's the response of the church? This was, I was spending night in prayer this week. What should the response of the church be to this agenda, but also to the LGBTQ community? And immediately, immediately, I believe the Holy Spirit put an impression upon me, not verbatim, but said this, the church, the church better bless and serve the socks off of the LGBTQ community. Bless and serve the socks off of them. And I was, I was, I was, I shouldn't have been stunned, but I go, whoa. I was like, I mean, it caught me off guard. Audibly, wow. And then I got all these ideas of what it would look like for us to do that on an individual level. Who in your family, friends that you know, extended family, that you could reach out to this month. Get eyeball to eyeball with them. Ask how they're doing. Show sincere care and compassion and love for them, right? What would it look like for us as a church um, to go to maybe certain establishments or certain events and figure out how we can wash feet and serve that community and get face to face with them and show them the love of Jesus. There's a false dichotomy in the church. There's a false dichotomy that if we welcome those in the LGBTQ community in our homes or we go to where they're at and we love them and we serve them and fellowship with them that we're endorsing their lifestyle. And nothing could be further from the truth because the gospel, Jesus Christ himself teaches us this. Jesus didn't endorse our lifestyle of sin. He loved us in spite of it. The tax collector, the prostitute, that's who he rolled with. That's who he fellowshiped with. He didn't endorse the tax collecting business. He, did, he got accused by the church if you will, by the religious authorities of being a, a, a friend of sinners for feasting with prostitutes and sexually broken, right? But that was the accusation 
against him. He didn't endorse their lifestyle. He loved them. Listen, church, he loved us in spite of our lifestyle, in spite of our lifestyle. And why in the world would we adopt this mindset in June during Gay Pride Month as the church, the body of Christ? And the answer is simply this. If you're here today and a Christian, the reason why we would do that is because it's simply what Jesus Christ has done for us. Romans 5 says this. Three times in Romans 5, we see this phrase, while we, while we, three times. This is what it says. Verse will be on the screen. For while we were still weak. What that word means is helpless to save ourselves. Toast, powerless to overcome the grave, to overcome sin, to overcome the kingdom of darkness, helpless, stuck in our sins, without hope, without God in the world, while we were weak. This is the gospel. This is the air we breathe. This is something we can never forget. This is why we sing songs saying, look at our Savior, Christ our Redeemer. We need to ask when we say Christ our Redeemer, what did he redeem us from? While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me, church. That's you and me. If we were the only people sucking air on the planet, Christ would still have to go to the cross to die for you and our sins, our rebellion towards God. And he just ups the ante here, the Holy Spirit, filling Paul as he writes Romans. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. Holy Spirit, come now, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to feel. Your love for us in spite of us, God. But God showed his love for us in that while we, second time while we, while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse nine, since, there, since therefore we, the ungodly, the sinful, have now been justified by his blood, his sacrificial love on the cross, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And if that wasn't enough, verse 10, the third while we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so all that to say, the way we respond to our enemies is the same way Jesus Christ responded to us in our sins. The only reason, I, I, got, I, I don't know if you felt moved by the spirit on that last song of I'll follow you anywhere. And I felt this word, uh, the Lord put on my heart, it broke me. The only reason we can respond to Jesus and saying, I'll follow you wherever you go is because he first followed us into the depths of our depravity and sin. The only reason, the only reason we can respond and say, I'll follow you wherever you wanna go is because he first had to do you understand the story of our lives is him following us into the depths of our depravity and our sin and clothing himself in our filth and our wickedness so that we could be lifted up and follow him? He came running for us. He had to first follow us to save us. And the beautiful call that we get to respond to 
to our precious King who saved us is now we'll follow you wherever you want to go. And last week we ended our, our, uh, the talk with this beautiful invitation of I feel like Jesus is inviting us in this season to, to have feet that look like his. It would be a beautiful honor to have feet that look like his. And he took the initiative. He built the bridge. He was the one who first acted on our behalf. And so with that said, Transit Church, the way we respond to our persecutors is the same way Jesus Christ did to his. Praying and dying for the very ones who are driving the nails in his wrists. Amen? Amen. Let's go for the Lord in prayer. Call the band up, and then we'll respond with communion and worship. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you humbly, God. The, repeat, the repeated refrain to your disciples, Jesus, was forgiveness and compassion. 70 times seven of forgiveness to our enemies, to those who have wronged us, God. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, you'd come right now to the body of Christ and that you'd fill us with compassion and repentance. Wherever there is bitterness and hatred, towards people or people groups, would that be repented of today? And would you, Jesus, come and give the transit church, this body, your body, the same compassion and love that you have for the lost? The lost in the LGBTQ community, the lost outside the community, God. Fill us with your compassion and your love, Lord God. And may it be May it be the gospel, Lord, the king who left his throne and took the 39 lashes for us and the cross for us and the penalty our sins deserve so that we could go free, God. May we be reminded today of the great cost of our salvation, the great love you had for us in spite of our lifestyle, in spite of our opposition to you, in spite of us running from you. Forgive us, Father, for even as believers, God, for all the ways you still have to chase us down and follow us in the depths of our sin to call us out. Forgive us, God. And Lord, I pray revival would come to the LGBTQ community, God. Show them your love, God. Show them your goodness. Show them your kindness, Jesus. For those that have been wounded by the church, show them, Jesus, how unlike the church sometimes you are, God. Reveal yourself. We cry out collectively. Join me in this prayer, Transit Church. We cry out for a renewal of your Holy Spirit to wash over this land, God. Not because we're fearful of persecution. Not because we want to reign and rule politically. But because we want the lost to be found, God. Let it be, God. Appear to them in dreams and visions. We echo the prayers in Acts 4, that as we step in and, uh, into, into the fray and we step out in faith, Lord God, that you would embolden us, Holy Spirit, to speak the truth, but to speak it clothed in the compassion of Christ, God. Give us opportunities this week, this month, to shine brightly for you, Jesus, to build bridges that have been destroyed and have been shattered, God. 
bring them home. Bring them home. And we cry out. We, we, we say that prayer because you brought us home. We'd be lost without you, Jesus. We'd be a mess without you. And the audacity to think that we can cast judgment on someone who doesn't know you, God. Forgive us. We'd be lost without you, God. Without hope, without you. And in spite of us, Jesus, you followed us, you pursued us, you died for us, you gave your everything for us. And the greatest honor that we could ever do, Lord, is respond likewise and give our everything to you. So come, Holy Spirit, have your way. We'll follow you wherever because you've purchased us with your blood. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. And so our life is yours, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.